going to be in 1 John 4 this morning, if you would turn with me there. In the Bible study I sent out this week, I asked the question, what is the most loved you have ever felt, and why did you feel that way? Typically when I ask questions like this, it takes a moment or two to respond, which is great. It means we are really thinking through these things. This question in particular, though, really had me thinking, and part of what I realized as I was thinking about it is that I couldn't come up with a single example that didn't involve someone doing something. As in, there was never a time when I just sat around feeling loved. Uh, every instance involved people and actions. And I know that I'm different, sort of different, uh, but I think we can probably all relate to this in some sense or another. As a kid, I remember feeling loved by my grandfather when he would drive me to football games or practice and he'd stick around to watch and cheer me on. Or when he would talk with me through tough situations. and He was an active presence in my life. As a college student, I remember feeling loved by a very small group of friends who, in spite of how rude and crass and sarcastic and mean that I could be, they still went hiking with me or invited me along when they went out to the suspension bridge or anything else like that for fun. As a young adult, I remember feeling loved when a young lady who was far too good for me said yes and walked an aisle dressed all in white so we could take vows to each other for life. I still feel that love in her continuing presence and willingness to put up with me in all my immaturity and bad manners and mischievousness and just the general difficulty of living with me because she stays. And on top of all the other things she does as a teacher during her day, she comes home most evenings and cooks for me because she knows I have a very particular set of skills that don't include cooking unless we're talking about egg sandwiches or macaroni and cheese. And when I tell dad jokes, she rolls her eyes. Some people might take that to mean she thinks I'm ridiculous, but okay, she does think I'm ridiculous, but she still loves me. And I say that because of her actions. If she never did anything, or if that small group of people never did anything, or if my grandfather never did anything, how would I ever really know they loved me. And I think this is somewhat true for all of us. We know love by actions. We can say we love. We can make all the claims. But ultimately, as the saying goes, actions speak louder than words, right? What we do reveals who we really are and what we really care about. There's this scene in Batman Begins where this reporter asked Batman his true name, and he says, in his sort of growly voice, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. And then he jumps off the rooftop they are on to go fight crime. It's such a great scene, and I don't do it justice, obviously. Uh, but for being a movie based on a comic book, it's pretty deep. The idea being expressed is incredibly similar to what John was saying throughout this sermon about love. We could even reword the phrase from Batman as John might have said it. It's not what I feel inside, 
but what I do that defines my love for God and others. This way of understanding love permeates John's entire way of thinking and is at the core of the text we will be looking at this morning. So follow along with me as we read in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. May God bless the reading of his word. So the first thing we need to see here uh, is that John says to test the spirits. And his reasoning is that there were false prophets who had gone out into the world. These prophets are connected directly with the spirit of Antichrist, which John said had already gone out into the world back in chapter 2. Most likely he was referring to any who arose as teachers within the Gnostic group or were acting as their leaders. This seems simple enough to understand, though in reality it may have been much more murky. Because these false prophets didn't run around calling themselves false prophets. They looked and sounded very similar to the Christians John was writing to warn. Their message may well have been, Jesus saves. But what John was making clear throughout this sermon, and especially right here, is that they weren't from God. His reasoning is rooted in the fact that the version of Jesus they were proclaiming could not save anyone, and in fact, didn't exist at all. Before we unpack why this was the case, I think we need to stop for a minute and consider how this very same principle might still be true for us. We live in a time of unprecedented access to information. It seems like everyone is connected in some way or to some form of media or other this means anyone has a stage to say whatever they want and can draw a crowd if they say it well. 
Preachers are no exception. Much like driving through a town in the south and seeing a church on every corner, there is hardly a corner of media that hasn't been populated by preachers. And while it may very well seem like they are all basically saying the same thing, the fact is that if we look closely at what each of them is teaching, we will find some distinct differences. Now some of these are what we could call benign differences. Differences such as whether or not we should have a liturgical worship service or a more free-flowing worship service. Whether we should allow only members to take communion with us or if anyone who professes to be a believer may share communion with us. These and a host of other similar questions fall under the benign category because they are what we might consider minor differences that have no impact on how we understand God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the other essentials of the faith. But then there are what we could call malignant differences, things that absolutely do affect how we understand the essentials. And these are the differences we need to pay attention to and look out for. In John's day, these were the Gnostics, the group of people who claimed to believe in Jesus, but also claimed, among other things, that Jesus was a spiritual being only, not a physical one. And John addressed that concept head-on throughout this sermon, and especially here, writing in verses 2 through 3, that any spirit who does not confess Jesus as a person of flesh and blood is not from God and is instead among the group he called Antichrist. Now, this heresy is still around even today, being perpetuated most widely in the fields of philosophy and psychology by the works of people uh, like Carl Jung and others in his vein. Uh, but as we have seen previously, it's also still around in the church as well. In any group who believe a Christian's ultimate goal is to leave this body and escape this planet for some other home somewhere else. The clear Christian message is that Jesus will return here to this planet, that the dead will be raised in new physical bodies like his, and that we will be together forever right here on this planet that God will renew. Those are very different ideas that say very different things about who God is and what faith is ultimately all about. So are we made from and for this earth, or are we made from and for some other place? Questions like this are important because they address who we are, and that impacts how we understand who God is. And there are a number of other concepts like this floating around in the church these days. What is critical to understand is that as many different veins of Christian faith as there may be, there is a small handful of things that bind us all together. These ideas are found historically in what are known as the creeds of the church, uh, but Baptists are not historically creedal denominations. So where does that leave us? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, although Baptists don't adhere to creeds, they have historically aligned with what they call confessions. The first was by a preacher named Thomas Helwes, who along with John Smith founded 
what was known as the General Baptist denomination. They called themselves General Baptists because they believed in general atonement, that Jesus' death was for all humanity without exception. This stands in opposition to the historic line of Baptist belief that rose up around an idea called limited atonement. These Baptists had their own confession called the London Baptist Confession, and they confessed that while Jesus' death was sufficient for the sins of the whole world, it was only effectual for a group known as the elect, those chosen by God. Now, I know this might seem like hiking in the weeds a little bit, but these are what seem like major differences. And yet, in Baptist churches for a very long time, these very different confessions of belief have coexisted. That's because the distinctions they make are not considered essential. Both acknowledge the triune God and Jesus' flesh and blood death as the means of salvation, which is the essential part. But when we come to the nature of Jesus and his sacrifice, we are talking about something that is vital to who God is and what our faith is all about. Which is why John encouraged his audience to test the spirits, to listen closely and discern if what they were hearing was in fact true to the message they heard from the beginning. That even though Jesus was divine, he was also a flesh and blood human. <clears throat> Pardon me. That Jesus was both fully God and fully man. That's called the hypostatic union, derived from the Greek word hypostasis, meaning something underlying. In other words, the substantial quality or nature of any person or thing. And we might use the term essence in the same sense to describe the true heart of something. This was how hypostasis was used in terms of who Jesus was. Whatever he looked like or seemed like, he was, in essence, both fully God and fully man. And even though this might seem like high theology, this was what John was trying to get these believers to consider to pay attention to what they were hearing from these other teachers and see if it was true to the idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man. And John described any other way of understanding Jesus as antichrist, as being opposed to or taking the place of Christ. And John was adamant that the believers not bend on this, which means it's crucial to who Jesus is and the faith that we have in him. And I can't keep count of how many conversations I have had with good-hearted church people who say something along the lines of, I don't care about all that deep theology stuff, I just love Jesus. John wasn't alone in expecting the people he taught to be theological. Jesus and Peter and James and Paul, and especially whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, they were right there with him. The whole New Testament is nothing but theology. And the reality is that each and every one of us is a theologian. Maybe not like Augustine or Martin Luther or even Tim Keller, but every single thing we believe and hold dear about God or the things of God 
is a matter of theology. John wanted believers who were giving their lives to Jesus to have a good idea of what that involved and what it looked like and meant, making sure they understood theological concepts, which means we need to be aware of them as well. In verse 4, John declared that these believers that uh, to these believers that they were from God and had overcome the Gnostic Antichrists, which is an interesting statement considering he was warning them about all this in the present tense. But the point he was making here wasn't about what they had to somehow accomplish or what they had somehow accomplished. It had to do with what Jesus had already done in them. And this links back to the Holy Spirit taking up residence within each believer. Or as John put it at the end of verse 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John would come back around to this in a bit, but he also wanted to continue making the distinction clear by explaining that the Antichrists, the Gnostics, they were from the world. That they moved with ease among the people of the world because they really weren't any different from them. They may have been saying things about Jesus, but ultimately their lives weren't any different at all. And this is a cautionary tale for all of us. Just because someone uses the name of Jesus doesn't mean what they believe is in line with what Jesus and his disciples taught. There are false teachers everywhere, especially on social media. We need to be aware, not for the sake of judging people and condemning them or anything like that, but to avoid falling into whatever error people are proclaiming under the banner of Christianity. I've spent my entire ministry trying to encourage people to not just know what they believe, but to know why they believe it. Because we can have all these beliefs and we can be extremely passionate about them, but not knowing why we believe them is the key because it's a matter of going back to the source and holding up whatever teaching we come across to see if it matches. In Acts 17, 10 through 11, we find a short description of a group of people who tested everything in this manner. And Luke wrote, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Is that true of us? Are we eager to dig into the Word? Do we examine the Scripture daily? Are we so familiar with them that we know when something isn't right? Or do we have some really strong, passionate beliefs that have no basis in the Bible? Beliefs that we inherited from family or maybe even from some church we grew up in that are actually driving us further from where we think we are headed. If we aren't willing to study the scriptures and pray about them and come together and have conversations about such things, how will we ever be sure? Are we more eager to watch the latest show on Netflix 
or to gather together and study the story of Jesus. John distinguished between true believers and the Gnostics by reminding his audience that they were from God, that those who are from God stick together, and that this is part of how we can tell the two apart. He went so far as to claim that this is even how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, that those who come together and listen to each other are from God, and that those who follow after any of the other teachings are not. And again, this isn't about whether someone is Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist. It's about whether they really are a part of the Christian faith or are something else entirely. Because the Gnostics were and still are. But John had been with Jesus and he knew the difference. He knew how to tell the two apart. This brings us to verses 7 through 8 where John once again circled back around to what he had already said in order to emphasize it. This time John made a point of connecting love and knowledge in an essential way, showing that they are both active relational terms in this sense. According to John, if believers love each other, they are born of God and know God. And the act of love is the key. How we treat each other is what really matters. It's what reveals who we are and whose we are. If we aren't loving each other with our actions, then we have a serious problem. Because on the other side of this, John also made it clear that those who didn't love did not know God. And then John made the second major statement about the nature of God. Remember from 1 John 1.5 that he wrote, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And here at the end of verse 8, John declared that God is love. Not that God knows love or created love or that God is loving, but that God is love. God is light, and God is love. And this naturally means that light and love go together. It also necessarily means that hate and darkness go together. Which is interesting because we might take it a look at ourselves and think, we don't have a problem with hate. We don't hate anybody. We may think we still have some dark corners to flush out, but hate isn't one of the issues in our life. The truth, according to John, is that the darkness within us is a matter of hate. Now, it may be that we hate someone else. It may be that we hate ourselves. It may be that we hate God in some way. But it may even be that we are indifferent, which is really just another form of hate. But hate is inevitably at the heart of darkness. On our own Outside of Christ, we are incapable of love. We may love pizza. We may love video games and riding horses. We may love our family members. But outside of God, outside of what Jesus has done for us, what we are really experiencing is something else. Something that may seem good, but really isn't. 
something that can never really be what God intended, something that is marred by the darkness within us, which is why it's so very important to look at our actions and see if we are acting lovingly toward others, to see if we are growing to be like Jesus. And if we look closely at ourselves and our actions, and especially how they affect others, we'll begin to see whether we are who we need to be, or if there is more darkness that needs to be flushed out. Thankfully, the work that makes it possible for us to experience love and to walk in the light and to love others with our lives has already been done. And John connected the dots on this in verses 9 through 10 by laying out the pattern of Jesus again. And it's important that we recognize this pattern and that it becomes a reality in our own lives. A week ago, we referenced Philippians 2, where Jesus did not hang on to what was rightfully his, but laid it down in order to become a servant of all. He did this through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus served all mankind by teaching about God's kingdom, living in the way of that kingdom, and giving up his life for it. John said two things about this that are actually closely connected. He said that God's love sent Jesus so that we might live through him, and so that Jesus might be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the means of mercy for us. And we have already spent a bit of time talking about propitiation being the means of mercy. But in this sense, it, it, it means a little more. Because it's the means through which we are able not just to receive mercy, but to receive life. New life. Full life. The life we were always meant to have. And this is how we are able to love each other the way God intends. The more we lean into the life he gives, the more we will find ourselves loving each other. Because life is a product of light and love. Whereas death is a product of darkness and hate. The line of demarcation between these two couldn't be any clearer. And if love is about action, about how we treat each other, then we have some work to do. We have some dark corners that need to be flushed out by the Holy Spirit. And I may sound like a broken record for saying it just about every week, but that's the whole point of this letter that John sent. We can't let ourselves be satisfied with being pretty good people. We can't settle in at mediocre. The way forward, the way to walk in the light as he is in the light and love each other as he loved us is by giving the Holy Spirit free reign. As John said in chapter 3, verse 24, the Holy Spirit is how we know that God has taken up residence within us. And if we are going to abide in him, if we're going to stay in God's camp, then we need to open ourselves completely to what the Holy Spirit is doing. That is how God becomes visible in us. In verse 12, 
John said, no one has seen God, but that if we love each other, God lives within us and his love is made perfect in us. Not immediately, obviously, but over time. As the Holy Spirit cleans out the darkness, we become more like Jesus and love as he loved. Is that what we want? Is it really the kind of people that we want to be? Are we ready to lay down our lives for others? To give up our time or finances for others? To employ our talents and abilities for others? Are we serious about this? Has love gotten a hold of us? Are we so intent on living like Jesus that we are ready to put aside all our own little kingdom-building practices for the sake of building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Based on what John wrote, the evidence will be clear. So let's lean into loving each other. Let's be careful about false teaching and let's use discernment so that we aren't led to believe that the kingdom of God is all about us and that we can do whatever we want because it's really all about Jesus. Let's realize that we are overcomers through the flesh and blood of Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection. And then let's love like we have never loved before with the same kind of sacrificial love that Jesus displayed so that those around us may come to know him as we live in the light and love of God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for bringing us together, for giving us this letter from John to point the way, and for calling us to love as you are loved. Father, strengthen us inside so that that's a reality in our lives. And may we love others as you have loved, as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name.